This is James Coover with K-State Research and Extension's Wildcat District with your Extension Crop Report. While we've had a fairly dry March and April, we've had a number of big rain events in May. The corn looks pretty good, save for some washed out areas. However, we'll likely see some effects of nitrogen loss caused by nitrification and leaching soon if it keeps raining. Nitrogen deficient corn will look a paler yellow than it should and will grow slower. It's important to note though that yellow corn at this current growth stage can be deceiving. The young corn could be having a difficult time getting its roots expanded while the tops are growing quickly. Yellowing corn, despite the adequate levels of nitrogen in the soil, nitrogen loss from leaching in our thin clay soils is less of an issue than in sandy areas. In clay soils, each inch of infiltrated rainfall moves the nitrate down the same one inch. This is only rain that has moved into the soil, but much of our rain has left in runoff, which takes a certain amount of nitrogen with it as well. Here, however, denitrification will be a much larger issue. Denitrification occurs when microbes can't get enough oxygen in waterlogged soils, so they use nitrate for the respiration and instead turn it into a gas. But before denitrification can occur, microbes have to turn the ammonia fertilizer into nitrates, and this process requires oxygen. This May, we've had some periods of completely saturated soil and periods of soil dry enough for gas exchange. This creates a good situation for denitrification. The conversion of ammonia to nitrate depends on oxygen availability in the soil, soil temperature, soil pH, fertilizer type, and lastly, how much fertilizer was applied. Anhydrous tends to have the lowest rate of conversion because the anhydrous ammonia placement suppresses the microbes at the application site. The more spread out the fertilizer, like from broadcasting rather than band placement, the faster the rate of conversion. Therefore, the question is how much nitrogen has been lost is in two parts how much nitrogen has been converted to nitrate, and how much nitrogen has been denitrified. A study from Nebraska showed that optimum soil temperatures of 75 to 80 degrees and waterlogged for three days, 60% of the nitrate was denitrified. Our soils have been between 65 to 75 degrees for most of May, and a few periods of waterlogged, so a good percentage of nitrates will probably have been lost. We have plenty of warm and likely wet weather in front of us. The losses from denitrification will continue to decrease. In the worst of years, denitrification can reach from 40 to 50 percent, but this will be worse in lower parts of the field where water stands. Nitrates in the soil is really a balancing act of ammonia fertilizer converting to nitrates, nitrates being taken up by the plants or lost to denitrification. Also organic matter breaking down into nitrogen. Tracking nitrate levels in the soil is not easy. The good news is that top dress nitrogen application applied before corn tassels is readily utilized. Application rates of 30 to 50 pounds of additional N is common. Closer to top dressing application, a profile test can help determine how much nitrogen is left in the soil and how much more needs to be applied. Although a profile test is more difficult to take, fewer overall samples are needed for an accurate application rate. If you have any questions about nitrogen losses or application rates, please contact me at 620-724-8233. Next up, we'll have Wendy Powell, Livestock Production Agent for the Wildcat District. Hi, this is Wendy Powell with the Wildcat Extension District of K-State Research and Extension. Free Choice Salt and Mineral is a great way to help your animals extract all the nutrients a pasture has to give. But mineral supplementation is not a one-size-fits-all proposition. With this year's moisture and late start to the hay season, it's not unusual to see empty mineral feeders. Fortunately, minerals do not require a daily intake, as most livestock can withstand small shortages. However, salt is an item that should be available at all times. 
Most mineral supplements state on the label that consumption averages 2 to 4 ounces per day. Intake, of course, depends on the animal's weight, age, forage type, and availability. Certain trace elements may interact with other minerals, causing them to be less available. Molybdenum is one example. When molybdenum levels are high enough, it can tie up copper. Keep in mind that sheep should never be fed copper or a copper mix. It is fatal. If a mineral supplementation is more than an animal's requirement, cost is increased, but that doesn't necessarily come with an increase in performance. Also, the cost of minerals will be higher if used as a carrier for one or more additives, like ionophores or parasite control. To make matters more complicated, trace minerals are poorly absorbed by beef cattle. Only about 5-10% to of the amount consumed is actually absorbed. And, there are several factors that can affect the efficiency of trace mineral absorption, like reproductive stage and stress. For instance, the requirement for manganese for gestating and early lactating cattle is twice the amount required for feedlot cattle. The concentrations which trace minerals should be included in a mineral mix can be determined by comparing the results of a forage analysis from your forage with the National Research Council's recommended concentrations. If your forage does not meet the concentrations, then trace mineral supplementation is recommended. Ideally, a custom mineral can be developed with the help of a feed store nutritionist. However, this typically requires a minimum order of one or two tons. For those of us who are unable to order a custom mix, we may be able to find an appropriate mineral mix at the local feed store. However, the major challenge faced by many producers is determining which one of these mineral mixes contain enough of the minerals for their livestock. It's important to understand that contrary to popular belief, animals are not able to voluntarily determine which minerals they are lacking and can't change their consumption based on physiological need. Because of this, free choice mineral mixes are used. However, their use depends on voluntary consumption. If daily consumption is different from the label's recommendation, strategies can be used to limit the intake of a mineral mix. Adding loose salt or moving mineral feeders away from the water source can slow down consumption. The bottom line is supplementation of trace minerals can be an area where significant costs can be saved over an animal's lifetime. Several trace minerals are challenging because they are inadequate in most forages or can be unavailable in a mix because of the presence of other elements. Evaluating both feedstuffs and water for trace mineral concentrations will help determine whether supplementation is justified. I encourage all livestock producers to invest a few extra dollars in testing their forage for energy, protein, and minerals. This enables you to make smarter supplementation buying decisions. To learn more about the mineral requirement for your specific animals, give me a call at the Wildcat Extension District, 620-784-5337. Thanks, Wendy. And now, here's David Scrantz, Natural Resource and Diversified Ag Agent, with her report. This is David Scrantz, one of the Agriculture and Natural Resource Agents from the K-State Research and Extension Wildcat District of Crawford, Labette, Montgomery, and Wilson Counties with your K-State Research and Extension report. 
Problems with blue-green algae and their associated toxins are most common during the summer and may become widespread in years with long periods of hot, dry weather. Occasionally, blue-green algae rapidly reproduce and form blooms or large colonies that are visible as a scum on the water's surface. They also may change the water color of a pond. Such blooms are often referred to as harmful algae blooms. These are typically most severe in stagnant areas such as coves or inlets where wind disturbance of the water surface is minimal and water temperatures are higher. Although agricultural nutrient runoff is a known risk factor, harmful algae blooms are also found in ponds surrounded by rangeland where agricultural nutrient loading is rarely an issue. Other environmental factors that may favor the formation of blooms include hot, sunny weather with little wind. Ponds with relatively clear water or low water movement may be more likely to produce harmful algae blooms due to high sunlight availability throughout the water column. Most toxins that are produced during harmful algae blooms are stored within the cyanobacteria until they die. As the cyanobacteria decompose, they release stored toxins into the water. A pond containing a harmful algae bloom may be covered with a scum that looks like bright green paint, but other colors are possible, varying from blue-green to gray and occasionally red or brown. Some types are filamentous and may form slimy strands and cling to each other. If blue-green algae is suspected, a water sample can be collected and sent to the Kansas State Veterinary Diagnostic Lab. If a pond contains a harmful algae bloom, copper sulfate can be used to kill the blue-green algae. This chemical, however, will also kill competing organisms such as green algae, which help keep blue-green algae in check. Copper does not break down but remains in pond sediment where it can affect pond ecology for many years. Sheep are sensitive to copper and should not be allowed access to a pond that has been treated with copper sulfate. Hazardous levels of copper may remain in the water and plants growing near the treated ponds for several years after treatment. As blue-green algae die after the chemical application, toxins are released from the organisms and disperse more widely. A second option is to reduce the amount of sunshine available to the blue-green algae. Spreading wheat or barley straw in a thin layer across the surface will shade the algae and may result in a decrease in blue-green algae bloom size. Thank you, Adavin. And now, here is Jesse Gilmore with his report. With K-State Research and Extension's Wildcat District, this is Jesse Gilmore bringing you this week's edition of the Hort Report. When trying to control damage on your garden plants, you don't always need to spray chemicals. Sometimes following integrated pest management principles will get you the results you want. IPM is a collection of different strategies that aims to reduce chemical impact on the environment by finding alternative ways to prevent pests from getting to your garden plants. Biological controls encourage populations of pests 
pests, natural enemies, which could be predators, parasites, or disease. Bt corn is one example of a biological control. The corn plant contains bacteria that kills any insects that ingest it. This will control pests while leaving beneficial insects that do not feed on the corn unharmed. Cultural controls include practices that reduce pest establishment, reproduction, dispersal, and survival. Exclusion, or keeping the pest from getting to your garden in the first place, is the most common method of cultural control. However, sometimes you need to analyze your own growing methods. For example, overwatering your garden can lead to more weeds and could also encourage fungal diseases. Selecting the right plants and varieties will help minimize pest impact, especially when it comes to disease resistance. Mechanical control kills a pest directly using tools, physically prevents a pest from getting to your garden, or makes the environment unsuitable for it. Note that IPM does not automatically exclude the use of chemicals just because they are chemicals, but rather views them as one of many tools in the toolbox. By combining chemical control with other control options, you can minimize potential harm to non-targets while still getting the pest control you want. There are five components of IPM programs that will determine if protecting your plants will be successful. The first is to properly identify the disease or insect. Some insects may look like they will be pests, but are instead beneficial. Misidentification of the problem can also cause your control strategies to be ineffective, which wastes money and time, and can have negative ecological impacts. The second step is to assess the number of pests and their damage. This also requires asking how much impact you can tolerate. Some people have pest-free yards, while others can tolerate weeds being present, but not bugs. Understanding the damage threshold pests have to reach before control is necessary will keep you from over-applying chemicals. The third step is to know the guidelines for when management is needed. This will depend on what plants you're trying to defend, as different plants can tolerate different levels of abuse. The fourth step is to use a combination of different strategies mentioned previously, which, as a reminder, can include chemical control. The last step after putting a pest control strategy into practice is to assess that strategy's effectiveness. That way, if you encounter the pest again in the future, you can use the same control methods or make adjustments to make your control plans even more effective. For more information on today's topic, contact your local extension office. I can be reached at 620-724-8233 or by email at jr637 at ksu.edu. Thank you, Jesse, and thank you for listening to K-State Research and Extension's Wildcat District Ag Team on KGGF 690 Radio.